Welcome to the Empathy Exchange podcast, the show dedicated to helping seniors care staff and residents' families build relational connections based on trust, respect, and understanding as partners in care. To work together in the shared goal of providing the best possible quality of life and care for people living in seniors care, your residents and loved ones. So if you work in seniors care or you're a family member, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Deborah Bakti. Welcome to episode three of the Empathy Exchange. I'm actually pretty excited to have this conversation with my guest about grief. And we may also talk about burnout and trauma. And you may think that's kind of weird to feel excited about talking about this topic. But it's such an important and relevant topic as it relates to the experience of care team members in seniors care and their families and residents. I'd like to introduce you to Edie Nathan and just take a moment to read her bio. Edie Nathan offers a new way to think about tangling with potent adversaries. Yes, New York University in New York City and Fordham University for master's degrees. She's a certified clinical social worker whose goal is to help people transform their lives, identifying tools to interrupt the silence and long-term effects burnout, grief, and trauma have within the structure of long-term care homes and hospices. One person at a time, one step at a time, changing the business of healthcare as it enters a new realm of care. Welcome, Edie. Hi, Deb. It's so good to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and just the insights that I know that you have. We've had the pleasure of working together for the last few years and also supporting seniors care homes in that journey through grief, burnout, and trauma. And I want to start with sharing, as you know, I often share with staff and families in my training that Families experience a shift in their identity when they become a family member in seniors care. And their loved one is also shifting their identity to that of a resident as well as being their loved one. And there's all sorts of emotions that are happening all at once and grief is one of them. I typically share in my workshops and trainings that when you think about the families, you're not just meeting the family, you're meeting their grief. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about grief so that we can learn more about its influence with both families as they go through this identity shift and huge life change, as well as the experience by care team members. So let's start, first of all, with the lens of the family experience. Grief in the family experience is probably something they're not even thinking about or looking at as part of their journey. And what grief does is it kind of loves to play hide and seek and it can show up, but it doesn't show up in the way that people think it will in that the grief that people usually think of is I've lost a loved one and the kind of grief that families go through when they're moving through the kind of the, the last phase of their loved one's life is often giving up the role of caretaker or it actually the role changes in terms of caretaker and giving up just a sense of being the watcher and 
those two elements can create grief. And grief, the way that I define grief, Deb, is it's a hunger for or a yearning for something that is missing. And so what what is missed in these family members is I I, I cannot be assured because there's a, a loss of trust sometimes. I'm the only one that can do this. And yet they're probably at a stage or phase where they realize they, they can't do it anymore. And so there's also a loss and a grief over what they thought they could do and they can no longer manage. And I see you shaking your head and I think you know exactly both professionally and personally what I'm talking about. Yeah. Sometimes I I would liken the experience with losing tie over years like death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. And I also think it's really important for family members in really understanding that it isn't um, a cut and dried grief is because the person has passed. And it was me working with the therapist that I had that education and realization. And as you and I have gone into seniors care homes and uh, worked with families and just what you described, we could see on families' faces that they're like, I'd never thought of it that way. Or how frustration and the anger and sadness and all of those emotions really are tucked underneath the grief. That's right. And so the hide and seek piece is that it will come out in different ways. The grief will come out in different ways and it will look different on everyone because grief is nonlinear. It doesn't follow a path. We can't count on it going from, oh, I'm going to feel this, 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 and this, and then it's done. It just doesn't work that way. And so in the, the ways that it hides is it will come out in anger. It will come out with anxiety. It will come out with depression. And so family members will, will you know, present to staff, to, to their loved ones, looking angry or frustrated or anxious or a form of lesser depression, which I, which is called malaise, a malaise. And, and as a result, what, what, what ends up happening is instead of going to, oh my gosh, I'm grieving. This is grief. They're just like sitting right in the muck of the anger and they Mm -hmm. become explosive. Their loved one witnesses that those explosions and, and so, so does staff. And then they start out really almost on a, on a, on a uh, not having very much leverage because they're already identified and you talk about this, you know, as a difficult family. But meanwhile, they're grieving. And if, if we could look at the lens of grief as, oh, it's, it's displaced anger or anxiety, I think it would make everyone's role so much easier within the dynamic of long-term care. Yeah. The other thing that was coming to mind as you were describing that is how guilt also attaches itself to grief. And I was thinking about, and it's a very simple example of going into into the home and I hadn't been in there for a couple of weeks to see Ty because I'd been traveling. I was working full time. And one of the staff says to me, oh, Deb, so nice to see you. Haven't seen you in a long time. And 
honestly, Edie, I don't think she meant anything by it. She was really saying, great to see you. Haven't seen you in a long time. That, I mean, a long time, or two how weeks. how did you hear it? How I heard it was, <laughs> oh, you awful, horrible person. You're not here coming to see your husband. And it was that guilt that I was feeling and the grief around the reality of our situation. And so I think that sometimes it can be helpful for families to, when they're struggling with those emotions, is to be able to really reflect and say, how is grief showing up in this moment? And I think the the thing that we didn't include in your bio is that you're the author of this book called It's Grief, The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss. And you have a bit of a unique perspective in that you talk about the phases of grief, not the stages. That's so right. can you just talk about that for a little bit? Sure, I'd love to. The stages of grief were originally written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a scientist, a doctor, and she was wonderful in bringing our conversation about the dying, you know, into, into our culture, because we just wanted to homogenize the experience of dying and just clean it up. And what she did was she, she really studied the, the life of people who were dying. And she created those five stages to say, this is what someone who is dying will go through. And they'll start with the denial and they'll end with acceptance and everything that goes in between. I, 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 I don't think that we go through stages and I, in, in, in writing about, well, what do people go through and what have I learned from my clients and the people who I work with who are grieving so many different kinds of loss, much like the losses that Dev and I are talking about and the, and the grief that, that we're talking about. And so I really created the phases because I think of phases being able to move in and out and nonlinear means there's no path, which oh is so frustrating. I, I wish I could say, so you're going to go here and then you're yeah. going to go here and then you're going to feel this and the next and the next and the next, and then you'll be done. So you're not done really kind of ever, but the good news is, is the way that you play with this dimension of experience of grief is that it is ever changing and your relationship with it shifts over time. So there might be that you're feeling anger and anxiety at the same time, but they're different phases. And so these phases really do move in and out of one another. And the last phase is not about acceptance, but actually about grace. And when I think about grace, it's not a religious perspective. It's more like, like coming home to grief and sitting with it in such a way that you know it's there, you know you've had a loss, you know there's been a variety of losses, loss of perhaps the caretaker role or the loss of control or the loss of the the way that your life had been prior to perhaps um, putting your loved one into a long-term care environment. Mm-hmm. And, and so what, 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 I, what I love is being in that grace is just, it's, it's, it's a relaxed place. And the interesting thing is that I'm pretty sure all of us <laughs> go on this journey of grief. Uh, some of us have lost loved ones 
earlier in life. And so it's this, it's this common bond that we have as humans, and yet we put pressure on ourselves. We uh, can put pressure on other people. I mean, I've got a friend of mine who lost his wife 30 plus years ago, and he will still bring her name up and talk about her. And it was like it was yesterday. And it's he's almost um, surprised that it feels so fresh. And yet I think that's a perfect example of grace, that we integrate these losses into our lives. It's when we're in the midst of it and going through that death by a thousand cuts experience and our reality keeps changing. The other thing that I just want to bring in, because you you coined a really interesting term when we were talking the other day, uh, that we can feel this guilt and this grief, and then moving a loved one into care, we also feel relief because now we have support. But then we feel guilty about feeling relieved. And I think you coined it relieving grief. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, relieving grief is a, a kind of grief where you are both relieved that the 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 running back and forth, the 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 the, the, the hyper vigilance of of care for your loved one has ceased. And there can be just a, an internal quiet that happens. And it's like relieved grieving because there's relief, but there's also grief. And it's very hard to explain to someone if someone approaches you and, and, and asks, so how are you, how are you feeling? And there may be a little bit of guilt or even regret in, I actually feel like I've got a little bit of room. I've got a little bit of air. I feel like I've got a little bit more time to, for self-care. And so that's the relief. And the grief is perhaps not being able to share that with too many people for fear of um, judgment. Um, and then there is, you know, it's co-mixed with a grief of, wow, I'm feeling this relief. On the other hand, I'm only feeling it because I know that my loved one is going into their next phase. Yeah. It's a great point. And I see this when I do emotion mapping with families and we talk about how they feel in certain points. And one of the questions is, you know, how did, how do you feel? How did you feel? Uh, when your loved one passed away, and it, yes. it's it sounds it almost sounds like a bit of an abrupt question, but the number of times that I hear that relieved but almost ashamed to say that out loud, and they're sitting in a peer group, the people are nodding their heads, going, "I get it. I felt that way too." It's just really hard to share with other people who have their version of what grief should look like. Yes. And there is that part about feeling relieved that your loved one is no longer. I mean, when I think my mom was 86 when she died and she had the year before she died, she just she was not into it. She was suffering tremendously. And so the relief of her passing, because I know that she and with her belief system, 
uh, where she knew in her heart and mind where she was going. And yet I still miss my mom. Yeah. Right. So I think it's um, an important perspective to be able to look at. You know, I, I, and I'm, I'm so glad that you, you know, you bring up Ty and you bring up your mom because somehow in our, in, in, in so many cultures, there's this feeling of, okay, so there's a, there's a, de- a determined period of time that you can talk about your, your, your loved one, um, if they've passed and, and then, and then you need to be done and no one has the move right on. to say, yeah, move on, let's be done. <laughs> and, you know, my mom's been gone, um, for 20 years and, and, on her birthday and and on other celebratory days that we used to ha- share together, she I, I am always telling stories about her her or I I have s- some of her jewelry and I say I put on that piece of jewelry and my mom's name was Elizabeth and I'll say to Elizabeth Elizabeth I'm showing you the world today <laughs> and you know um, it, 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 to make a toast to sometimes even have at times, and not to make it eerie, but, you know, to make a dedication at the top of a meal, there's nothing wrong in, 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 in memory of, even if your loved one has not passed, but has now gone into a long-term care situation. Because if they were living with you, and now all of a sudden, the space that they filled within your home is empty, it's really important to dignify that and honor it and acknowledge it rather than just, oh, now, you know, we're, we're next. Yes. Yeah. So I find I'm driving anytime Hotel California comes on. It's like, okay, Ty, you're saying hello. I get it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, absolutely. And we, we all have our, our signals, whether we decide we're going to um, acknowledge them or not is right. an entirely different conversation. Yes. If you'd like to learn more about the work that I do in providing staff training, family training, or if you're also looking to redesign your admission process, you can find me at debrabakti.com. And you can email me at debrabakti.com, and all that information will be in the show notes. So I'd like to step on the other side of the relationship and talk about care team members. Because, and sometimes I find families are surprised when I share this, but that care team members, staff who work in seniors care, they also experience grief when they, I mean, certainly in their personal lives, but as it relates to working in seniors care, when they lose one of their residents who they really grew to care and to love. And in the business of, we'll say, long-term care, when a resident passes, it's pretty typical that the expectation is that room is cleaned out within 24 hours. There's a very quick turnaround and it's system related, right? It's funding related. Um, in retirement assisted living, memory care, there's a, there's more time that's available to the family. And uh, going back to long-term care, then within three, maybe four days, a new resident is moving in and um, thinking specifically Ontario where there's a massive wait list that 
people are on the list and we've got to get them moved in. And so you've got staff who it's this suddenness perhaps of uh, sometimes the death is expected, sometimes it's not. And within a very short order, that room is cleaned out and it's sanitized and it's prepared. And then 72 hours later, there's a new resident with their family that's going to be living in that room. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and you've been doing some work with me in seniors care. And I just would be interested in thinking about people working in in that role, what your thoughts are and perhaps some insights that you can share with them as they are also grappling the grief journey, just for different reasons. As you know, and we've talked about this quite extensively, so often staff doesn't that they don't even realize that they're having a reaction to um, the repetition of having um, a resident come in, spending time with them, and then having that resident pass. And within some, sometimes it's three to five days, sometimes it's even shorter, having a new resident come in. And, um, you know, we've talked about, you know, the loss of compassion. And I was thinking about this because sometimes when a term gets used over and over again, we stop really hearing it. And I, I'm wondering if this term, it's a, it's a connection trap in that what grief does is it perhaps loss after loss after loss, it makes connection and caring for the resident in terms of a personal connection, not in terms of how care will be delivered to them, but in terms of the heart to heart connection that that often the reasons why anyone goes into working in long-term care, it's their heart more than Mm -hmm. anything else. They want to care. And yet with repetitive losses, that heart begins to close. And so they're doing their job maybe more in an automatic way and not really bridging the gap between their closed heart and their grief that they're feeling. And so it's a connection trap, the the repetitive losses. And to be aware that they can create connection and and still protect the self. And how, how do you do this? You, you understand that your gift is that gift of connection and it's about the resident and perhaps it's less about you, but that then you take one thing that perhaps that resident has given you for the day or something, a smile. And if you've smiled at them, that is also allowing your heart to be present with them. And your grief needs to be understood that there is grief and even recognizing it and saying, okay, you know what? I'm just going to take a moment. And I know moments are hard, hard to grasp. They're hard to get because your days, their days are just nonstop from morning until the point where they leave or if you're, if you're doing nights. So to, you know, on a bathroom break, take one more minute and say, wow, you know, like I'm, I, I, I'm feeling sad 
or to even write a couple of words down at the end of the day and to take what's going on inside to move it out and to put it onto something. I'm not talking about a journal. I'm not talking about more work, but just recognizing and identifying and accurately labeling what's happening for you. And I think that what, what happens in that case is that you're actually allowing your heart to open, not only to yourself, but, but potentially you're bridging that gap between um, your heart and the connection trap that happens with your grief. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about where we've heard from staff commenting something to the likes of, you know, I just don't want to get close to anybody because it hurts too much. And and I actually saw this where Ty lived. There was, uh, I mean, Ty was a young resident at 63. This gentleman was even younger. He was in his 40s when he moved into long-term care. And he just got to the point where he didn't want to make friends with any of the other residents because they just die on him. Yeah. And when we see that we're shutting ourselves down, I kind of think of it as we're we're really ripping ourselves off from having those moments that matter. And yes, we know that there's going to come a time and there's going to be loss and the emotions around that, but we're ripping ourselves off of those little heartfelt moments where you can make somebody laugh or you've got some kind of ritual when they see you every morning and also the gift that you're giving to those residents and other family members for that matter. So it's, I think what's interesting and in, when we think about the empathy exchange is that in that relational triangle with the resident, the care team members and the families, they're all experiencing different types of grief. And when we can come together and acknowledge that versus trying to sweep it under the carpet or, uh, you know, there'd be times when I would think going in and I just, I didn't want anybody to see me crying, you know, because then I, I, I don't want to draw attention to myself or staff when... Or they, you're strong, you know, I'm, I'm strong, I can do this, you know. Not going to show any weakness. No. And with staff, when the residents leaving the building and there's that finality there and they're now thinking, okay, we've got another resident moving in and we've got to get ready for that. It's like they're not even able to take a beat. And that's what I'm talking about. That beat is so important. So, and I'm glad you, you, you know, even to have like a word, like, I love your word, take a beat. Okay, I'm going to take a beat right now. I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to take a beat. And I think the other funny, interesting thing about emotions is that when we do acknowledge them, they don't last forever. Even though that's how it feels. Right. It feels like I'm never going to get out of this. Yeah, I don't have time to feel this right now. I'm going to compartmentalize it and deal with it later. So I want to switch gears. We've been working together providing education to seniors care teams about grief, burnout, and trauma. And you share a really powerful story about 9-11 and how that relates to the experience of grief, trauma, and burnout. And I was hoping that you would share that story. Absolutely.
One of the, the things about living in New York, and I've been here for, for many, many years, is that there are always things going on in the city, but we really didn't expect a 9-11. I don't know that anybody ever expects a 9-11 to happen. I had a hard time getting into the city the day of nobody could really travel, and I was about 20 miles away. But the next day I was able to get onto a train and what ultimately happened was after going to the Red Cross to volunteer, I actually was taken down to the 9-11 site. And I was housed in what had been the old American Express building. Anyway, this was the area in this old American Express building where the men, and it was only men, um, were coming in from the pits. And what we've realized is that the, the experience that these men had and the experiences that people who were um, affected by 9-11, that they didn't reach out for help. One year later, two years later, that the effects from 9-11, the emotional effects, depression, grief, um, malaise, anxiety, began to really surface 10 and 15 years after 9-11. And so what we're also concerned about with COVID, because COVID, you know, was punctuated by um, a crisis, an immediate crisis that lasted a, a couple of years. And now it doesn't really even have a place. We don't have a name for it, but it's there. And we don't know what the isolation, the long-term care effects, and the stressors that you, that anyone who is in this the, the long-term care system will be experiencing um, as an aftermath. And so our work has really been about saying, you know what, you experience something and you can put it away and compartmentalize just like what we've talking about. And there's, got, there's grief there from COVID. And you, again, may have put it away and said, okay, well, we're not in that emergency situation anymore. But putting it away contributes to burnout. And that burnout can show up with mistakes or feeling like you've got a foggy brain or, you, you know, not feeling comfortable still uh, in your own home for how you had to come home. And perhaps certainly I've spoken to so many people who would undress in their basements or undress in their cars. They didn't want anyone in their families to get COVID from them, from their clothing. And, and so what ended up happening and what ends up happening is that there's shock and that shock begins to wear off. And if we can have these conversations now about the burnout and the grief and the trauma of COVID, then maybe it's not going to have to be 10 and 15 years later that you begin to work on and delve into the aftermath of those emotional effects. And that's, I think, why your podcast is so important, The Empathy Exchange, because this is about empathy for the people who have gone through this with you 
but also empathy for the self. Yeah. You know, with talking to staff who, after learning more about these topics, are able to recognize that they weren't even, they were not even aware that they had trauma. That's right. And I think how we judge trauma as the big T trauma, uh, that, you know, I use the example of going rock climbing, getting stuck between two rocks and you have to chew your arm off. That would be traumatizing. That's right. <laughs> right. But there's also trauma involved with what maybe we're perceiving as well. That wasn't really that big of a deal. And in fact, it was and it is. And and I, I think the importance of the lessons learned with 9-11 and that 10 to 15 years later, because we are still in the midst, the lingering of COVID, and it just feels like everybody is busier than ever. And to be able to take that pause and get some insight and education around these things and how to be able to best support ourselves so that we're not paying the big price that's years right. down the road. That's right. That, that's exactly right. And and what we know about grief, burnout, or trauma is that when they're not dealt, dealt with, when they're shelved, it, it can certainly bring on autoimmune disorders. It can bring on gut health issues. It can bring on migraines. It can bring on, you know, um, TMJ. So it's, it's it's really important to to understand that the sh shelving it might be the go to, and it's often the messaging that people in healthcare are given. You know what? Come on, it's this is over, crisis over. Let's move on, and that that dynamic um, really doesn't speak to the necessity to properly and accurately identify. Okay, I'm grieving, or this is burnout, or you know what? I, I'm grieving and there's burnout because I've experienced trauma and it's okay to say that to yourself and for you to have some empathy for the self. Yeah. On that note, the last question that I have for you is how can staff and families create an empathy exchange without getting caught up or overwhelmed or uh, I think a therapeutic term is called flooded? Now, how can we, because yeah. it's so important that we have this empathy exchange, but not to get caught up in, in that. One small step. What we know about grief and burnout and trauma is that community is one of the best ways to counter some of the effects of these three topics that people don't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so for family members, if, even for residents and for certainly anyone working in this field to have moments of meaning, meaning if you say hello to someone, just look them in the eye and mean it. Have a connection. When you say, how are you? Don't make it a throwaway. Actually take a pause and say, how are you? And make it mean something. Because it can be those little tiny moments of meaningful exchanges that can make big differences. The, the other piece is to be, begin to have those internal conversations for, for, for yourselves. And what that means is, gee, am I, am I feeling grief? And, and when you ask that question, think about what might you be yearning for 
And what are you hungry for? It's not because there's something that might be missing and it's a missing piece. And it might be connection. It might be that you're exhausted and you need more sleep. It might mean that you need to laugh or find something that brings you joy. And Mm -hmm. that can be in in an aroma. That can be in some delicious food that you make for yourself. It can be in exercise. So I I, I guess it's about self-care that also can create this this empathy uh, for, for for all people. And the other is to understand that though you feel like you're alone and your experiences are your own, being able to share whatever is going on with you with one safe person is the beginning of opening up a world that might feel very lonely and scary. Yeah, I love how you talked about the the small steps and also what I heard in that is is being curious, not judgmental about our emotions and to be able to be curious and say what am I possibly missing right now? Like That's what's right. what's going on that I could do one small thing to help with that feeling and and being able to acknowledge that because I think sometimes we can judge ourselves to go oh for goodness sake like it's not going to be helpful to be thinking that way and I don't know what's going on and right and and then we get all caught up in that we totally do we get we get so caught up in it and and instead of getting caught up in it you can be the change agent and that that idea of I'm going to be a change agent for the way that I am holding on to my grief or my burnout or my trauma, once you've identified it, empowers you. And that's what this is really about. Yeah. How to be empowered with your own sh- shifting from a stuck place that can often feel imprisoning to a more liberated place, which when f- people feel more liberated, it, 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 it spreads. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Edie, for this just wonderful conversation. And I think the listeners will get a lot out of it. So thank you again. Thanks, Deb. Always a pleasure. And remember, there's power in your presence. So make your presence matter.